0: Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, my lovelies. This is our last session of the year. This time last year, Challenges That Changes was a thought inside my head. Maybe one day I could start a podcast and talk to everyone about the challenges people face and how they've overcome them. So I cannot think of a better way to finish this year out than to bring on one of the most inspirational guests we have. Sam Monday is a former professional Australian cyclist who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 11. This superstar is from our own hometown, Armidale, and he's now living in Spain, getting ready to explore the world of gravel racing. Sam talks about the moment he was diagnosed and how he digested this information. We discussed how you went from a country cyclist to an international stage by the age of 20. Sam represents not only our country, but he cycles for every other person out there with diabetes. He was told early on that he cannot really exercise, and now he's leading the way to showing others that you can achieve your dreams regardless of your challenges. We have a great conversation around the day in the life of an Australian athlete, the athlete mentality, like how do you get in the right frame of mind when a race is not going the way you planned? And the second half of this interview, we dive deep into his harrowing experience where he collided with a car during a training session. He talks about how he crawled his way back to where he is today. Sam really opens up about the struggles and challenges he faced and how he took steps to move through them. There is a trigger warning on this episode for cycling and a collision with a car. Let me introduce you to one of the most determined young men I have ever met. I'd like to welcome Sam Monday onto the podcast. Challenges it changes. Thank you, Sam, for giving up your time today and coming on.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And Sam, we always start the podcast with the question: What animal best describes you, and what is it about that animal?
1: Yeah, I would say that's kind of one that I struggled with. I guess in in general with my personality, I'd say I've, over time, ha- being forced to become quite resilient. In general. So I would say probably in a way something in us, that aspect, I thought of it as a camel. Yeah, And being the aspect that the camel has to carry its own water and be resilient to basically learning to adapt and survive without having access to water or walking for hours on end. So I see it's quite a different way around that, but I would see that as being similar to my personality trait in that aspect
0: it's um always so interesting when people come up with animals we haven't had a camel on yet but as you were saying that and for the audience obviously you're a cyclist that do these really long hours out on the road yeah. sometimes you'll be by yourself sometimes you'll be with your teams or your coaches and you know that's why i love this question because it just draws out yeah. different little bits to how we see ourselves did you ask anyone what animal they thought you were
1: not really i, I think i struggled to try and think of it myself but yeah yeah, I thought more or less that was the aspect of my personality that I think probably differentiates me a bit. Yeah. And that was an animal that I thought connects to that in particular. So
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about you. So you have gone on and done some incredible things in the cycling world, but where did it all begin? Like what got you into cycling in the first place?
1: Yeah, so I think originally – Basically, it was my dad and my older brother. They were always involved in cycling when I was younger. I was always super active as a child, playing football, being in athletics. So, I think being from a a very active family helped that. My parents were always super active and the rest of my family around me. So, that was probably the trigger into just that growing up. But the real thing that pushed me more into cycling was... I always enjoyed it through my dad and brother, but then after being diagnosed with diabetes, I met Justin Morris, who used to be a former professional for Team Novo Nordisk and Team Type 1, which was the team previously before Team Novo Nordisk. And he, being a Type 1 diabetic, I met him through one of my healthcare providers and really inspired me with his uh, story of how he was racing professionally and had been diabetic for I think at the time he was diagnosed a similar time to me and was performing at the highest level so I think that really pushed me to show that I could still you know compete and push cycling into there as far as I wanted to.
0: How old were you when when you found out about the diabetes?
1: So I was 11 yeah. Yeah wow yeah.
0: Do you remember that? Yeah
1: I think even now I still remember all aspects of of that so it was quite a obviously quite a hard time, but I think Yeah. also it came at a time where even now without having diabetes, it's kind of, I've had it more for longer than I haven't now. Mm. So it's it's kind of hard to remember what it was like before that.
0: Because I know, I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about cycling, but let's just yeah. pause here for a moment around the diabetes. Do you remember what it looked like for you the weeks and months that unfolded after you got that diagnosis, like how you were able to process that and how you had to integrate that into your world?
1: Yeah, I think it was, Wow, well, it was all very sudden, like quite overwhelming yeah. with a lot of information because at the time I actually didn't know anything about type 1 diabetes, so I'd never heard of it. I'd never knew anyone with it. And so it was really like for me, just it was like everything I'd learned just started back at zero. Really, it was quite overwhelming with information, but also I was very just determined from the start to not let that stop anything I wanted to. So I was really the time involved in was quite good playing football and was really passionate about that. And that was something I really said to myself that, like, well, I will do whatever it is so i can keep playing football and living living how i wanted to so i think that switch or that approach in my mind was probably i don't know maybe it's surprising for even when i look back considering i was only 11 years old but I think that really helped over that next year or two
0: yeah it was a non-negotiable it was like this is not going to get in my way but yeah
1: exactly I'd
0: imagine for most people they wouldn't go on and play football is that I mean diabetes hasn't really touched my world so it might be worth even talking around what changes there was for you even as an 11 year old like how did your world change
1: yeah exactly I think everything, it was always in the back of my mind. So, you know, when I was playing football, I was always having to think about carrying extra sugar or having um, like a drink mix on the side of the field. And just, I think all your, your thoughts and sensations kind of evolved around in my, is my glucose low? Is it high? So it was, I guess you became quite consumed at the time with that thought, process and having to constantly think about diabetes and making sure, you know, my sugar levels are okay and I'm doing things around that that aren't going to help it or cause it to drop or cause it to be a problem.
0: Were there some scary moments in the start?
1: Yeah, I think so because really I knew not much about it and obviously you have some moments where you make mistakes with taking too much insulin or whatever and have some low glucose when you don't want to. So I think, yeah, there was those things made it quite, I wouldn't say scary, but just more so probably for me being younger, frustrating because Mm. you see all other kids that age don't have to think about that or do anything. So I think in the back of my mind at the time, it was as much as I tried to not let it get to me, I think at times it was hard. Yeah, of
0: course. Of course. And so you met Justin and he sort of opened your world up to the possibility within cycling.
1: Yeah. I think before that I was always racing. So I probably, well, riding a bike. So I loved that, but I met Justin probably when I was around 14 and I never knew it was really possible to be a professional athlete living with diabetes or being able to pursue it that far
0: i don't think many people know that it's possible you know
1: no exactly so i think he really opened my eyes up to yeah being able to do anything with diabetes and not letting it restrict you because i think that was one thing when i was prior to that first diagnosed the doctor's advice was really you shouldn't exercise you shouldn't do anything because it's too dangerous that was the initial advice and I think that's probably something that motivated me more to prove that wrong I guess in a way
0: does Justin know the impact that he's had on you have you had this conversation with him
1: he has yeah yeah Yeah. I think I always see him as a big mentor for me and I think he really shaped well where my life where it's been in the past few years and also my approach just in general to who I am as a person. So I'm yeah, very grateful for him and the impact he had on me at that age, because that's obviously being a diabetic or just anyone at that age, 13, 14, I think it it can be quite a time where you really, you change in a way or your approach to, to things is impacted quite significantly.
0: Mm. And for those that don't know Sam's actually from Armidale where I am at the moment and this is like a country town so even the fact that you've become a professional athlete from a rural town you know even that in itself is amazing but to hear your story about getting diagnosed at 11 and then by 14 talking to someone and starting to get that picture in your mind that this is possible so take us through how you went from that 14 year old to where you are now.
1: Yeah, so I think I started racing more or cycling more when I was around 14, 15. Just locally? Yeah, locally. And then it stepped up probably when I was around 16, 17, doing more of the state races and eventually national championships and other races involved. But in that meantime, when I was around 16, 17, I reached out to, well, Novo Nordisk had a Kind of like a talent identification uh, program where they were looking for younger athletes and they had some training camps where they were identifying talent. So Team Novo Nordisk. So it's a, at the moment it's a fully diabetic professional team, so all the athletes are type 1 diabetic. And prior to that it was Team Type 1, which was comprised of some diabetic athletes also within that cycling team. Mm-hmm. So I was scouted to go to the U.S. and attend an a talent identification camp there with them. That was probably the first step in that. So I was only 17 at the time and I traveled to the U.S. for this camp. And following that, I was actually lucky enough to be selected for the Team Nova Nordisk development team. And that following year, then I started racing in a few races throughout Europe with that team and then also in the U.S. So I spent six months living in the U.S. and racing over there uh, to gain experience and basically be involved in competitions all throughout Europe and the U.S. So that was the first step from that.
0: And how many years have you been cycling in professional?
1: So following that, then I was racing three years in the professional team which is at the highest level of cycling, so uh, racing the top UCI races and following before that I was with the development team for two years.
0: Yeah. Wow, you would have had some memories created in those years.
1: Yeah, exactly. What have
0: been some of the highlights?
1: um, I would say probably some of the countries and environments I raced in were quite – Different. I think one of the big ones I remember clearly was racing in the Dominican Republic. So it was a really big mix of quite a third world country and racing amongst there within being right in that culture and surrounded around that, but also being able to race there was quite unique. I don't think it's somewhere where many people would, let alone visit or go, let alone race. Um, so that was a, a really big eye-opener. And then following that, the past, later on, or well, the past two years racing in the professional team, I think some of the biggest highlights were in a few of the races, such as one of the ones of Walter Asturias, which was a, a stage race in Spain, being able to race against all the best riders in the world. So, you know, riding alongside names like Naro Quintana, Chris Froome, who won the Tour de France multiple years. Sam <laughs> <Set>
0: Monday. <laughs> They're saying that about you too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe not quite as much.
0: But. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine, right? Like for us back here listening to you, you know, you can kind of get a bit of a picture, but it is hard for us to imagine what that would be like.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that always was a big, you know, you had to kind of pinch yourself that growing up watching races and, idolizing these other cyclists and then actually competing against them in a race those years later is something quite special. And I think that's something will always be one of the highest or the biggest memories that I will, will have for sure.
0: Yeah, and obviously the podcast is challenges that change us and, you know, even just listening to this little bit, there's going to be lots of challenges within that. We've already spoken a little bit about the diabetes. Maybe if we unpack that a little bit more and then look at some of the other challenges. So what did it mean for you with the diabetes and becoming a professional athlete? Like what did your world look like that would be different to other people's?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing, well, at first I think is quite a like being super proud that, you know, I've achieved a goal that I had for so many years when I was younger, but also representing it's more than for me It's more of a special thing because I'm representing all other people that have diabetes and their struggles around that. Because when, like I said, when I was younger, I was told that you cannot really exercise or do anything. So I think that in a way it was, Is probably the biggest thing that makes me – that is part of the achievement is showing to others that, you know, it is possible to achieve whatever it is, whether it's involved in uh, sports or any goals they have to not let diabetes stop you or affect you from uh, achieving those dreams. So I think that is probably a starting point was the biggest thing that also motivated me a lot to – train as best as possible and be the best athlete possible because it was 50% for me and achieving what I wanted to achieve, but also demonstrating to the whole diabetes community and representing them in a way so that they have a a platform. And did
0: you use that in races, like when things got tough or when, you know, training got tough and grueling? Is that some of the thoughts that you use to kind of propel you into the next bit?
1: Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest motivations because it's, you know, got a reason to push that much harder in training and dig that much deeper in in races because, you know, you're representing all the other millions of people out there and i think that's something special that kind of united the team in a really positive way that everyone has the same challenge or is doing it all for the same reasons so i think that was something also special that identified us but also made us in a way bond better than other teams and other cyclists so i think that was something really quite cool and unique that i'll always be really proud of
0: yeah I've got goosebumps just as you're talking about it because I can just imagine, you know, those moments where you just got to pull from the depths of the depths and doing it for other people and the other young kids, the other 11-year-olds that are out there that have just been told that they can't play sport and you're like, no, look at me go. Like, look at all of us here.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I think that's uh, something I think a lot of us would even talk about together within the team and I think, you know, it's something that really probably was the biggest motivator for me and made me every day want to go out and push harder in training and do the best I could in the races, so.
0: Mm. And did education play a huge role for you, understanding diabetes, understanding your body?
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing with diabetes too, that I, there's very vague guidelines with type 1 diabetes that say, you know, you should use this rough formula to do things. But I think Also, it's one of those diseases that it's so individual that it's really a game of trial and error. So I think that's something I learned early on and particularly as an athlete because it's really, I think over the years, it's like built for me. It's from the mistakes I've made and the things that I've learned. It's I could write a novel on everything that it's you constantly are educating yourself every day about, something different or what works for your body and how to control your diabetes better. So I think that also process through the years of racing and being with the team was, it was always about the education behind the diabetes and then teaching each other. So I think we together within the team environment really learnt and built upon things that we'd learnt and then had applied them Uh, whether it's something I've learned or my teammate has learned regarding diabetes and training or performance. So I think over the years we really built upon that and were able to, you know, keep educating ourselves on what makes things better, what makes things easier with diabetes. So in terms of the doctors that we had on the team, Really, by the end, I think we felt, well, not by the end, but after a while I think we felt like we were educating them rather than they were educating us on things about diabetes.
0: And that's kind of where you've got to get to when you have a chronic illness, don't you think? You've almost got to, yeah. you've almost got to understand it so well that you're soundboarding yeah. off someone else that might have a different idea for you personally yeah. to be able to walk in the world. What do you wish you knew earlier?
1: I think... Probably what in regards to the diabetes, diabetes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing is probably the tech technology that has changed even over the past 10 years or so mm. in terms of management with continuous glucose monitors. Like That was really a big game changer in the way it's helped me manage my diabetes and also taken the uh, thinking aspect out of things, so
0: so the guesswork kind of taking some of the guesswork away.
1: Yeah, exactly. When I was younger and training, I would need to just use the glucose monitor, prick my finger beforehand, and more or less go by feel or guess kind of what I'm, what my glucose is or how I feel. It was really you were constantly thinking about it. Whereas having the continuous glucose monitor now, I can see every five minutes. Or really, whenever, but it updates every five minutes to tell me exactly what my glucose is doing. So I think that was a bit more like a reassurance and it makes you kind of think less about diabetes in a way.
0: I imagine it's like if you do think about it or you are worried about it or something feels a bit off, you can just check. Like it's just, you just go, what's the number? What's, you know, what's the data here? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? Yeah, right. Exactly.
1: So I think having that when I was first diagnosed would have been something that would have helped. um, I wish I probably had when I was younger.
0: Mm. And this is not the only challenge that you have faced along your road. You have had many. What other challenges have you come across? What other adversity have you faced in your time in the cycling world?
1: Yeah, I would say also when I first became – well, when I was racing in the US uh, prior to getting on the professional team, that was quite a, a challenge in the environment I was having to to live in. So we were in a house of around 10 guys, um, all in their mid-18 to probably 25 living within one house and having to train, race and recover as best as possible in, in that environment. And I think... It was good at times, but also I think there was not many many opportunities to have your own personal space or be able to disconnect from that. It was quite a a tough environment having so many people. So close together all the time.
0: Like the intensity of it, do you mean? Like just I think that so. not being yeah. able to take a breath and get away and just have some of your own time. Exactly. And you also don't always get along with everyone, right? Like in the nicest possible way, if you're throwing 10 people in, the chances that all 10 are going to like each other and be able to live together. Exactly. History tells me that's probably not going to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was more or less the case. But in yeah. a way, I think that made me quite. Well, it it was good and it definitely made me quite adaptable to any situations. I think when I was not then having to live with 10 people or in the one small house, it was quite – it was amazing.
0: Yeah. It made the other side look gold. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and what did the training when you say that? Because that would have the training would have been intense, right? Like what did just give us a bit of an idea about what one of those days would have looked like on a good solid training day.
1: Yeah. So generally it would be waking up in the morning, and making sure I'm having, you know, good breakfast, preparing everything beforehand in terms of particularly making sure it's another thing with diabetes, making sure you're starting the day right with good steady glucose control generally would be around five hours would be four to six hours of training on the bike, but would also involve quite a few efforts and intervals within that. So it would be quite an intense five hours of riding.
0: And for those that don't know, when we talk about effort and intervals, you know, I'm very knowledgeable cyclist here, but (laughs) it's where you put, you you work a lot harder during those times. So, you know, if you're doing five minutes on and it's a 10 out of 10 or a nine out of 10 or an eight, whatever it is, and then recovery and then go again, but you're still on the bike the whole time. So it's like these spurts of high intensity. Yeah. Is that right, Sam?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: on and off throughout that whole four to five hours.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it would be quite intense training session with that and following generally i would always with recovery you know, making sure you're getting a good nutritious meal that's appropriate to the training so it's quite high in carbohydrates and a good amount of protein following the training and then also would involve other activities such as like stretching core training like a little bit of light gym work
0: i love that that's your recovery <laughs> And we go to the gym to recover. (laughs) We just do a core workout. (laughs) So different to our world. We do the core workout and then we recover. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. So that would be part of the, like the day and then the rest would really be trying to get as best recovery as possible for training the next day. And obviously around that doing other things that you enjoy, relaxing, whether it's reading or i always like to cook so spending time cooking and yeah by the time with really a six hour training day and the things around it it really is more like seven or eight hours by the time you're preparing things so it is those days when they're quite big like that are quite a full full day of uh, intensity
0: And it really is like sleep, eat, train, recover, sleep, eat, train, recover, like your whole world revolves around what is it that you need to do next to put you in the best possible position for the next bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I think that's one thing like a lot of people probably or certainly wouldn't be able to live a life as an athlete because at times it can be if your personality isn't like that it can particularly as a cyclist it can be quite isolating or you spend a lot of hours maybe it's training by yourself or doing things because you need to It, it really is a process of making sure you're doing what you need to do right which may sacrifice even being able to train with others because you need to do specific training for yourself for example
0: how do you get through those lonely moments and those isolating moments
1: yeah, I think for me always being during the training, well, I quite like to train alone in the fact that I'm quite self-motivated, but I know a lot of my other teammates or things would struggle with that a lot more. But I think the biggest thing would just be looking at the end kind of goal or what the the purpose is around that with the training.
0: Your reason why, like the Yeah, what, the, the reason what, why. yeah.
1: The Maybe it's a focus on the next upcoming race or something. But I must say then when I'm not training, I'm someone who likes to be around people, friends, family. So I would always in my time, almost your training time is like work time in a way when it really is. So it's just focus to get done what you got to do. And then outside of that time is more where I would like to you know, use that time as being social and connecting with friends, people. But in general, it can be quite an isolating sport because it's not like you're going to a workplace where you're surrounded by other people. It's a lot of days and hours out on the bike, probably by yourself.
0: This is a shout out to all athletes, coaches, managers, and mentors who may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely actions so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free Project Health Check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And talking about mindset, how do you get in the right frame of mind when a race isn't going to plan?
1: Yeah, I think that's something can be hard, particularly maybe I would have had good expectations on a race and it just didn't go to plan. But I think it's really just understanding and that not every day is a good day. You know, you're going to have more bad days than good in general. And I think that's something I really learned from other cyclists who I would or mentors like Justin who I'd been involved around when I was younger is that generally probably you're going to have like 80% days where you feel shit training or you do whatever or maybe the races don't go to plan, but I think it's just really refocusing. And the main thing is to not let that consume you and try to forget about it quick and refocus on the next goal or plan, because it can be the case that I've had it where I would be super prepared and think that I'm in the best shape for a race and maybe five minutes into the race, I have a big crash and, you know, then the race is done or whatever. So it's really, Trying to, I think, be motivated to rethink forward to the next goal and not let the setbacks overwhelm you. So I think that's always the most important thing.
0: And do you, you know, I'm going to try and break this down a little bit and, you know, it's okay if you don't have the answers for it, but, you know, when you say that it's like reset, but how do you reset? Is it acknowledging where you are? Is it using the word reset? Like how do you actually reset the button? How do you hit that reset button? It's one thing to say you need to reset. How do you actually reset? Because there's disappointment, there's overwhelm, there's anxiety, there's frustration, there's, oh, you know, I'm talking for you here, but (laughs) like I can only imagine, like you said, you're prepared for a race, months, years training, and then you get there and you have a crash and you can't change that, right? But that doesn't mean that all those emotions aren't there and you don't want to just be like pissed off for a little while.
1: Yeah, 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 and I think that's normal in the first phase is probably you are... Quite upset or frustrated about that, but I think for me it is really maybe there's something I've really reflecting on what it was, and maybe there's something mistakes that I did make, or maybe there wasn't. But I think it's kind of accepting that mentally and going, okay, that's that's where it was. There's nothing I can do to change that, and now I just have to look at it as the process and move, visualize. Forward on what the next goal is. I think within cycling as well, there's a lot of uh, self visualization and using visual cues of what what's the next race going to look like, or really looking forward in in the whole process because one day it's such a big. Maybe you train for months on end, and then that one race goes shit, but. There's always maybe a race in the week's time could go amazing. Maybe you could be there to win. So it's it's really as hard as it is, I think I learnt you've got to be quick to forget in a way for those little setbacks.
0: Let's talk about the visualisation for a second because a lot of people don't actually know what that is or how to do that. So what does that mean for you when you use that word? Can you give us an example?
1: Yeah, I think in a race like I would even – say picture even while i'm i'm racing picture the kind of next phase of the move so whether it's it would be within the peloton and then it's picturing myself attacking and riding off the front solo away from the other riders so i think it's it's using that as like a mental cue to positively kind of motivate yourself but also To show yourself in a positive state, regardless of what it might be, even if maybe the things aren't in the race aren't going so well or things in training aren't going so well. So picturing yourself riding strong and being there with all the other riders.
0: I always think about it, and I'm curious on your opinion on this, but it's like, if you get stuck in the negative, if you get stuck in the here and now and the what's not going well in the race, then you're likely to fall backwards, you know. But For sure. if you're thinking yep. about the positive, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but it means that you're going to be way in front of where you'd be if you were think instead of thinking about the negative.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a true thing that endurance sports are more or less sixty percent is actual mental ability rather mm. than physical. It's probably only forty percent physical capacity. So.
0: So I could be an elite athlete, you're telling me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: How long would you spend in that visualization space? So say you're in the race and something isn't going to plan and you're starting to think about, you know, coming off the pack and going forwards. Like is that a couple of minutes? Is that 10 minutes? Are you thinking about all the noise and that like do you take everything into consideration, like all the senses or are you just thinking about what you can visually see?
1: I think it's probably a weird thing that within the way – I don't know, with cycling or the way that I've always done things is almost you're constantly visualizing the next thing. So as much as you are in the moment, probably throughout the whole race, I'm actually visualizing or thinking of the next step or the things that are going better, or maybe you visualizing yourself riding and pushing stronger than what you are, for example. And I think it's it's almost like a way to keep your mindset really focused and in a a positive state of mind. So, I would say it kind of doesn't stop. It's yeah. Almost,
0: and it's a skill, right?
1: Yeah, I would say so.
0: Did you feel that you had to train to get to that really strong mindset?
1: Yeah, I think it was probably something over time it's taken a lot of time, but I would say that was probably one of the benefits of when I was younger. I did have to train a lot by myself and do a lot of long hours training because there weren't so many other top athletes around to train with so I really had to motivate myself or visualize myself performing well and and everything on the bike while training for years so I think in a way that would have helped me to become good at, at that or using that sense
0: and just out of curiosity did someone teach you that or is it just something that you developed over
1: time Probably developed over time, but I think the few coaches I had growing up, Justin was probably a good mentor in that way, but a few of the other coaches I had over the years were very good at using um, or focusing on sensations I think is a big thing and visualizing positive things as well whilst you're training. So. I think that would have been probably the main thing that's helped me develop that over the years.
0: And let's talk about rehab because a professional athlete, And someone, a school teacher, a mum and dad, like we all go through phases in our life where we have an injury, whether it be mental or physical. And there's a period of time that we need to recover in that space. And I know that like, I always think about the accident that you had during COVID. I think you are in Spain only because I saw your mum and dad and they told me about it and they couldn't get over to see you. And it was really serious. I mean, you've probably had other very serious accidents, but that's the one I think about. And I remember thinking as a mum, like Oh, my God, they can't get over to you. They must be distraught. And then my next thought was how do you get back up from that place? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that was probably for me the biggest challenge I've probably faced, I would say, in Mm. my life, probably in general. What happened? So basically coming off, it was in my second year racing professionally, and I just actually returned to Spain following the, with all the COVID lockdown uh, period. I went back to Australia for a few months. So luckily, I was able to get out of Europe for I think two months uh, during the midst of COVID, and I was able to travel back to Spain earlier than pretty much anyone could, being a professional athlete and also being a resident of Spain. So I was back there in early July and just in time before a training camp that we had, uh, because we also resumed racing a lot before international travel opened up and everything. So it was prior to, we had a training camp in Italy, just prior to the first round of races starting back up. And I would say I trained super hard when I came back during that COVID lockdown in Australia. And, and there was some restrictions and things on then, but I really had, I was hyper motivated, I would say. And really my days just evolved or purely around training and recovering. And there wasn't much else you could do with things being closed and kind of shut. So in a way there was no distractions or anything around that, which probably in a, in a way was super beneficial. So coming into this training camp, I was probably going, being the fittest I'd ever been by far. And we were out one day, only three days into the camp, doing some efforts up a climb. So we're doing some interval sessions and coming down one of the descents, we were all spread out individually and weren't really riding as a group at the time and a car on the side of the road was stopped in the side bay but I looked up ahead and the car obviously just didn't look and u-turned directly in front of me but I was probably only 50 meters away from it when it did turn and I remember we're going around 60k an hour so it's not slow and I remember putting on the brakes and that was basically it so I don't really remember the exact accident, but I remember flashes of it because the shock, I think as the doctors said, the shock was, well, the trauma is so high that generally your brain actually wipes that out of your memory. So it is quite a, with high impact trauma. And I remember being on the ground and luckily I had some teammates around that were able to kind of comfort me and get help. So, and also my coach and team director were in the car ahead and eventually they obviously got communicated to by my other teammates. And yeah, I was then helicoptered out to Bolzano Hospital where basically I was in intensive care for the first few hours until I was stable. But what had happened was I essentially hit the car 90 degrees because it had turned in front and I had nowhere to go. And luckily didn't go through the, the side of the glass, but over the top of the car, which was thankful because if I hit the side of the car completely, then for sure the doctors assured like I would not be alive. So I think that was something that was pretty just fate, I guess. And following that, I was quite really yeah badly injured so i had triple fractured pelvis and also my sacrum was fractured and i'd broken i think three or four ribs shattered my collarbone to pieces so there really was no bone left and also the joint behind was separated and the most dangerous thing i had was the pneumothorax so it's basically where the lung is completely collapse essentially with the impact it just pops like a balloon so my right lung was completely deflated and yeah luckily i was fine in the reality of things but not in a a good state and yeah i think then following that i was in italy for 12 days in the hospital there to recover particularly with the lung the bleeding in the lung and also they needed to take some time to do surgery on the shoulder because they couldn't do anything whilst the lung was still in that state. And yeah, then following that, I was transported back to Italy for, for to Girona, Spain, where I was living. And it's quite crazy. So from that day, I was put, my apartment was three stories, but it was all stairs, which is quite normal hear that there's not really many places that have elevators. But because of my fractured pelvis, I could not walk. So I think for six weeks, I was actually stuck in my apartment in bed without being able to go outside or see anyone or anything.
0: And it was also COVID as well, right? Like it was right in the midst of people not being able to.
1: So I think that was quite a a yeah a big challenge I think in general
0: what was the hardest part for you in it like
1: I think initially I was just happy to be alive I guess Mm. like I think when you know you're in such a vulnerable state or an accident that bad I think like I didn't know at first whether I would be able to ride again or anything but that wasn't really something I even Thought about or was worried about, so which is probably good. I think my mindset was more like survival. Yeah, exactly. And following that, I had luckily a friend of mine, Dylan, who was living with me at the time, another cyclist. Uh, he's from Inverell, actually, a professional cyclist. Yeah, so.
0: that just so if people don't know, that's an hour up the road. <laughs> that's random.
1: Yeah, so luckily I had at least him around to help do some things. You know, go get food from the supermarket because i really couldn't do anything or just to have someone around um and yeah then basically the next six weeks were what more than six weeks but proper six weeks was just inside doing a lot of rehab every day and just small steps like it was before I could move, I was starting to rehab on my shoulder to make sure that was getting back in place before I could walk. Uh, And it was just, I think a very slow process of each day being able to say, lift my arm or lift my leg. And then, you know, the next day being able to do a slightly bigger movement. And I think it was really, it's like, your body just goes from a full reset. It's like learning to do everything again in a way.
0: And did you feel like all your training as a cyclist and all those hours on the road on your own helped you in that process or do you feel like it worked For against sure. you? Yeah, I was wondering that. I
1: think the thing was even when I had the collapsed lung, like the doctors were saying if you weren't so fit, like anyone who's even just a a decent cyclist or something, probably like maybe they wouldn't have survived that situation. So I think I'm grateful for that at the time. I was probably the fittest I've been. That, that really helped with the recovery and also the how badly injured I was in the end, which was I was badly injured, but it could have been a lot worse.
0: Yeah. So what happened once you got past the survival part? Like once you were like, right, I am alive and I am okay, you know, then I imagine it dawns on you like, whoa, what am I going to do with my life? Like what if I get back to cycling or, you know, did that yeah. part come up for you or it didn't?
1: To be honest, it didn't. I think that was almost I just went back into kind of the same athlete mentality that, okay, well, I just do, do rehab. Yeah, what can I do around this? So I was doing three to four hours rehab a day. Gym exercises, like, well, basic exercises on the bed, stretching things, and then base introducing strength exercises once I could do a little bit more. So I think it was really just focusing on the process. I think being as an athlete, I've always been liked a very structured routine around everything I do in the day. And so I think I would I really need just my own routine to have set out for different rehab things during the day and just tried to keep as busy as possible around that. So like when my arm, I could barely use my right arm because of the collarbone fracture, but I would spend an hour trying to make breakfast with one arm because it gave me something and a, a purpose to keep that structure in the day. So I think I was quite motivated really from the start to just get back Uh, as fit and strong as quick as possible.
0: Have you known this whole time that that's your superpower and that's what makes you brilliant and that's what gets you through the tough times? Do you know that, that that routine, that structure, that discipline, that, you know, focus and that really strong reason why, are you aware that that's your superpower or not really?
1: I don't know, but I think over the years it's really probably – shown that or i think it's something that i thrive upon in mm, a way
0: i can hear that throughout this whole interview mm.
1: yeah it's kind of having that structural routine like if i
0: but like intense structure routine it's not like yeah. a light like i wake up and i casually have breakfast it's like i need to do this and then i need to do this and then i need to do this
1: yeah and i think that makes i don't know with whatever i do that's something that motivates me more than having i don't know the time or even having that stress of Okay, I was injured and I needed to be back as fit as possible if I wanted to race in four months or whatever it was.
0: Hang on, did you just say in your mind you were thinking you were going to be racing in four months after that accident?
1: That was probably the goal, yeah.
0: Yeah, did you get there?
1: The thing was by the end of the season that came around, we didn't really have any other races left, Ah. so... But in the shape I was in, I was more or less ready to to race by the end of October.
0: Wow. I have two questions for you around this. One is we have a local cyclist here that's just had a very serious accident. What would you say to him? Like, When you're in that depth of he's just come out of hospital, just gotten home, starting the beginning right where you've just spoken about, Like, what would be your advice to someone that's been through, I know every accident's different and every individual's different, but- What words would you have for someone that's right back at that start, you know, they don't know what their life's going to look like, they don't know if they're ever going to be walking properly or cycling properly or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I think it's really just focusing in the moment. I think that's the biggest thing that I've probably learned is accepting what has happened and looking at the positive things around it that you can do to improve that situation, whether it be small steps maybe it's only one small action but that's one positive thing that leads to another positive thing because i think the daunting thing is always looking too far ahead of time and being like well i've i'm in this situation and maybe it's going to be 12 months before i could do anything or i don't know how long i can be functional again but i think keeping busy occupied with people and things you enjoy around you and looking at the small goals or the small positive achievements is always the, the key that I've noticed,
0: mm, and I agree. Like when I think back to a couple of times that I've been back at, you know, s- step one: how to walk, yeah. <laughs> how to talk. Yeah, exactly. um, is that exactly what you said? It's like I I remember very clearly trying to read again after my stroke, and I was trying to read yeah. Spot, you know, those Spot books, and trying to read yeah. it to my child that was in kindergarten, thinking I need to go to school with her. But it wasn't like how am I going to read a novel? It was like just focus on this one book. Like yeah. when I can read Spot. I'll read the next level. But like right now, the only thing I need to focus on is how to read spot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. when that
0: mind runs too far in front, like with the what ifs and the how am I going to and the what will the world look like, you don't know what it's going it to look
1: overwhelming. like. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can't
0: possibly know, right?
1: <laughs> no, no, exactly. So I think that was also one of the biggest things for me is during that whole period of like eight months, when I look back, I didn't really give myself any time to think in a way, which is probably – a good thing like whenever I was not doing something I would try to keep busy whether it was just call a friend for an hour who was someone back home or speak to family or just uh, keep the mind busy but also having a, a focus and I think that then made me almost forget about the issue in a way which was the best thing for me in that at that time
0: and you did get back to cycling
1: yeah well following that um well this was going into 2000 or 2021 so last year coming into i think one thing that i was quite proud of was coming into the we had a january training camp in the south of spain that we did every year that was only five months after my accident and normally normally in australia they would say or any other doctor who wasn't our my sports doctor they really He believed because of how fit I was quite uh, accelerated the process of me starting to do things and getting back to training. But normally it would be probably four months, probably three months before I would even start cycling again. But I would say at that training camp after five months, I was one of the fittest guys in the team by far already at that camp. So I think that was quite a big motivator for me to know that while I'm back in really good shape and was probably back to the best performance that I'd been doing in the years before.
0: That's, can we just take a moment? Like Sam, that's amazing. Like that is a huge effort.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Massive.
1: Yeah. So it was um, something I think I was pretty proud of to be able to turn around that quick. And I think also to have my, the team doctor I had who was incredibly supportive, I think he was part of the, a huge help in that regard. So I don't think without his help and motivation it would have been possible to be at that phase and back racing in, or being ready to race in January the next year.
0: Mm, it's really interesting listening to you talk. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's been really critical people on your journey. Like there's been yeah. really distinct people that you've talked about throughout yeah, this exactly. interview that are like this person in that moment, in that point in time was pivotal to where I am today.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something, you know, of course also there's other people like my parents for always being super supportive in everything I do or being able to give me the, the opportunity to do what I love and am passionate about. So I think that's, of course, the core behind everything with that too.
0: And I think about your parents letting, well, letting, encouraging, supporting you to go overseas with diabetes at such a young age, like oh, yeah, as, exactly. a, as a parent watching your child walk yeah. out the door, yes, you want them to be fabulous and brilliant, but you want them to be safe. So, you know, I can imagine there would have, that would have been a huge challenge. To There would have been two sides to the coin with that, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And Sam, giving the story that we just heard and the severity of the injuries, I mean this is not unheard of. Like I just said, there's someone locally that's just had an accident. I've had lots of mates. I get so scared every time my husband goes out the door on the bike. Let's just have a little bit of a conversation around what drivers could be aware of or do differently and then potentially what cyclists can also do in that space because we've got a lot of listeners out there that are hearing this conversation and I think if we can just increase that awareness just 1% we might save one life somewhere.
1: Yeah, I think I think the most important thing is, you know, at the end of the day we're all sharing the roads and everyone, the cyclist and the driver just has an equal right to be on the road. Well, both as equal as each other. But in terms of the – for drivers, I think it's just really important to be aware that, you know, cyclists are, are vulnerable. It's there, you know, there's not much going to protect you between – Getting hit by a car with only a helmet on, you know. So I think it's just creating awareness and giving them space or following the road rules, you know. If you have to wait for a few seconds to wait for a cyclist uh, before it's safe to overtake, for example, it's just really being patient in that way and being also aware when you drive. I think there's been cases where people texting while driving and i think that's just you know irresponsible for drivers so i think it's following the road rules and just being that extra bit aware particularly when there are cyclists around because they are vulnerable on the road
0: And I'm the first one to put up my hand to say that I actually didn't know that cyclists couldn't go off the side of the road until I became a triathlete. So until I was riding road bikes, I actually thought bikes could move and I never understood why they didn't go off the bitumen onto the side of the road. But, you know, unless you're a really good cyclist and you're on a road bike, you're not going to go off the side of the road. Like you need to be on the bitumen where the cars are.
1: No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think in return for cyclists, they also have a responsibility to – create a safe environment for themselves and drivers so i think the most important thing is following the road rules in particular so you know you've got to be aware that there's cars on the road and create space for them so riding three abreast across a road is definitely not something that cyclists should be doing that i see some people do and then that's you know they're breaking their responsibilities to be safe so it's you know keeping two abreast and keeping tight on the the side of the road and you know not being in the middle of the road but also being aware and paying attention because everyone makes mistakes and there's going to be cyclists who make mistakes and drivers that do. So it's even when I'm training I'm always you're in a zone where you're very hyper alert. So it's always paying attention because it can be just a split second that where an accident happens, whether it's your fault or not, it can happen. So and at the end of the day it doesn't really matter. Whose fault it is, because if it happens, it happens. So I think it's being aware of everyone and taking safety measures like using a rear light, for example, rear blinking light. Most professionals and training today, and even myself during the middle of the day, will use like a daytime rear flashing light. So I think that's important. And it's super easy to just be a little bit more visible on the road and taking measures to just make sure that you're seen by drivers as well and that you're aware of them.
0: Oh, wow, Sam, we've had a big conversation today. What is next for you? Because you've just stopped doing the professional cycling for a little while. What does it look like 2023 for
1: you? Yeah, so I think at the moment I'm working uh, in Girona, Spain for a cycling company here, doing a lot of their logistics for cycling tours and working also within the retail side of things within a, a cycling store here beyond that i've missed having some personal goals this year with cycling so i think that's something that i really have missed from not being racing as a professional next year i i would like to compete in some of the uci gravel races which are some of the international gravel races and events around europe so it's becoming quite a big scene here at the moment and really uh, gaining i guess popularity and momentum so that's something that excites me is being a little different as well to road cycling and motivates me so yeah I'll be targeting a few races.
0: A new challenge on the horizon.
1: Exactly yeah.
0: You've got the taste for challenge I think Sam it's like you've had so much so much to battle throughout your life and so much adversity and so much challenge that now that's what you know and of course now that like part of who you are is overcoming the things that most people can't overcome or doing something that people haven't been able to or trying something new or yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And I love to finish the podcast by asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh?
1: Yeah, I thought about this one for a bit because there's quite a few people or things. I think always just everyone in my family in general makes me laugh quite a bit. Uh, but on the side of that, I would actually say the comedian Ricky Gervais. I don't know why this, but I find him, he's quite politically incorrect, but also hilarious at the same time. So, I think he's someone that always makes me laugh quite a bit.
0: And final question, which we never ask guests, this is a special one for you, is are you ever out there on the road by yourself and you just burst out laughing? Is there ever a moment that you're like, have you ever had that moment or it's always serious and you're always on?
1: Uh, probably not burst out laughing, but uh, I think there's probably been moments of something maybe you see out riding on the road yeah. or whatever that would trigger that. But I think yeah. there's always moments for uh, where it's not so serious or when I'm with mates as well. There's been a few times where someone said something and I've more or less had to stop because I can't cycle and laughing so hard. So I think that's always sorry guys, I'm tapping out of training
0: right now. You're too funny. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, thank you so much, sam We took took a little while to get this interview going and I'm so pleased we persisted with the timing because obviously we're in different countries and trying to find that that time that we could both match up. But yes, what a conversation. Thank you so much.
1: No, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me on and um yeah I really appreciate it. So it's been great to chat.
0: I really enjoyed that interview listening to Sam talk about what happens between his two ears to help propel him in the direction he wants to go. It's really interesting listening to his journey back from the collision, how he focused on routine structure and small positive steps. It's something I can relate to and would really encourage any one of you out there today who's going through a tough time to focus in on. What is the one thing that I can do today that's going to get me one step closer to where I want to be. Ask yourself the question, where is my energy going? Am I using it to help support my recovery or am I using it to spiral backwards? Life throws many, many curveballs at all of us, but it's how we respond and react that determines if we get better or we get bitter. I have a beautiful quote I want to read to you all, and it might help you just if you're in the middle of, in the middle or the thick of it at the moment. I actually don't know where I got this quote from. I've had it since she's seven. Um, I have it printed up on my wall. The heading is, your attitude determines your altitude. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than success, than what people think or say or do. Is more important than appearance or skill. It will make or break a company, a person, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for the day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change how other people act. The only thing we can do is play on the one thing we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you, we are in charge of our attitudes. Okay, guys, I'm signing off for the year, but before I do, I want to mention a couple of things. First, thank you so, 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 so much for the love and support this year. Challenges That Change Us did not exist this time last year and we have only grown because you show up here every single week. Secondly. I want to personally invite you to our Mindset Reset free planning session on January the 2nd. It starts at 8.30. It's three hours. The link is in the show notes. I want to spend the morning with you, helping you to get crystal clear on what you want for 2023 and how you go about achieving that. I will add more information in our Facebook group. So jump on Challenges That Change Us, find us there and we'll let you in. You guys are so amazing and I wish I could personally thank each of you individually. I'm so freaking excited about what we are bringing to the table next year for you. I will see you all next Monday in the new year.